welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing The Lady of the Lake, Chapter 2. As with everything with Sapkowski, he loves his framing devices, as we've talked about before. So in Chapter 1, we have Siri uh, talking to Galahad and relaying the information and the entire story. And then now we have a future framing device. Not even just like with Tower Swallows, where we had you know, a few weeks in the future, like this is years and years and years in retrospect with this character of Kadwimish Tilly and Nimue. And Nimue we met as a kid back in Baptism of Fire. She was in the group that the storyteller just before the Battle of the Bridge uh, was talking to, you know, in the future about how the story will branch and, you know, you must take your time, you know, sort of Sapkowski talking to us. Again, the Sapkowski talking to us really comes into play, especially with this, this dynamic of Kadwimers and Nimoy. Kadwimers is the audience. She is, you know, this young uh, student uh, sorceress who's in a neuromancer, but she's like the audience. She wants answers, she wants it to be kind, she wants it to be fun and, you know, fantasy. And Nimue is the older, wiser um, person in this group, and she sees the falsehoods for what they are. In a way, this their, their dialogue can be read as a dialogue between the audience, the readers, and Sukowski himself. You know, Carl Wimmers wants a glorious tale of adventure. She wants a story with a happy ending, a story in which the, the, the good and the bad get their comeuppance, um, you know, and everything is wonderful and kind, and none of that, that truth out there. Nimoy understands the appeal of the, the, the light entertainment, the fantasy, you know, good triumphs, uh, you know, evil, uh, you know, uh, gets his comeuppance, but she sees the falsehoods for what that is, realizes that truth inherently is more satisfying. Um, there's this old adage about fiction. Fiction is the lie that tells the truth. It is a fantasy. It is a fiction uh, using falsehoods and... Uh, uh, other such things to tell a true story in a way whether that is a true real event or real people or moral tales or uh you know just the truth of the human experience a story should be telling you something not uh not just be mindless fun it should serve a purpose a story you know, is a, is a lie that tells a truth. It is a guide, in a way, of a, of a morality tale or uh, the thing that speaks truth to power. Art inherently is a form of protest against society, against whatever. And so no matter how ridiculous the fiction seems, there should be an underlying truth of it. And that if there isn't, then it is not, um, you know, not fulfilling. A good story tells, you know, the reader and shows them the truth in many different ways. A bad story does nothing of the sort, just simply mildly entertains. And that is 
what we've seen with uh, with the the legend of the Witcher and the Witcheress, as Cod Weavers and Nimoy talk about, that this legend has sort of proliferated in the the years since, and become something of a fairy tale, and has been diluted and changed. And there are different versions. There's the cleaned up version for kids. There's uh, various versions that skip over certain sections, like the entirety of the two saw stuff, which we will be seeing here in a bit. And we get just a taste of in this chapter, uh, you know, is primarily skipped over in most versions. Quote unquote, the location of the final battle is called Reese Rune Castle. Uh, but that is not corroborated by all sources. Some say Steiger Castle instead. And so there's this entire, you know, not only the way in which truth is diluted over time, you know, good fact versus real fact, which we'll get more into that um, as that becomes a bit more obvious. You know, we've talked about it before, but there's a specific chapter in here that really will dive into what that means and how that affects you know, future generations. But, you know, just here right now, we we see that, you know, we reading this, we know that in this universe, the story of Geralt and Ciri, the Witcher and the Witcheress, is a real story that is being diluted and changed in certain ways. And only the true version, the version that means anything to the Moe, is the one that speaks the truth to the reader that these diluted versions do not speak the truth they aren't there to entertain um and or there to get across a message that wasn't in the original text Nimue's entire deal is she's become obsessed with the the legend for various different reasons uh we will see two reasons why one in this book and one in the prequel book and Akkad Weimers is also interested but she prefers stories to have happy endings and reality isn't like that reality is you know a never-ending cycle reality doesn't have a beginning middle and end you know there is this concept within fiction that every good story starts uh, continues and then ends and it all loops around each other and is all perfect and all dandy and Having had a creative writing degree, having a bachelor's degree in it, I was taught the Varnace Act structures and and the you know the way these are splintered out and the, the various different constructions of you know the, the the way conflict enters, the way character development works, etc., etc., etc. And then there's of course like uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, how many legends you know across various different cultures follow the same formula. And the thing is, is that life cannot be so delineated in such a fine, you know, refined graph. You know, life is complicated. Life seems to go on and on and on until it doesn't. People die young. People die old. Uh, you know, who's to say their journey was not done or fully completed or what have you? And the late, great Sir Terry Pratchett came up with a term in one of his books called the Neridium, uh, which is um, a, a basically the physical embodiment of story. Um, and, and, you know, his, his, his Discworld books are very metatextual and in many ways about not only his own philosophy, but also about fiction and the way he views storytelling and the way he views art and the process of art. 
Um, if you take that out, the neridium, and you say that this is what a story is, just like iron is iron, copper is copper, a physical mineral, who's to say that any uh, any story can contradict that? Because you can't have that in real life, right? With life, when you input life into fiction, you are left with this non-narrative you are left with this graph that goes in circles and crazy lines and goes all over the place and doesn't have a real defined ebb and flow. And so if a story is to tell the truth, if it is to take in reality, if it is to tell the truth to the reader in some way, it must find a way to ebb and flow while also being true to life in some way. And stories that try and tell more truth than others don't have as much of that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a process of storytelling. It is a complicated jumble of things. Storytelling is universal. Every culture has a form of storytelling, whether oral, you know, or, or written, etc. Uh, you know, cavemen were telling stories to themselves by drawing in caves. You know, this is a fact of human existence. But how do you define it? Something ends, something begins. We in life, you know, end one journey, begin another. Nothing really ends. But yet, all things end. And isn't that contradictory? And if you are going to tell a true story whether this is a really true story a fic or a fiction, a lie that tells the truth, you need to accommodate that and realize that things cannot change, but also must change. Sikowski is talking about not only the nature of storytelling and the nature of, um, you know, cultural uh, biases and good fact versus real fact, uh, revisionist history, but also the way in which we have evolved as creatures uh you know king, he introduced a king arthur character last chapter king arthur's legend and i mean in this chapter you know nimoe is the real name of Le the lady of the lake she's even referred to that and of course the fisher king is also from uh arthurian legend complete with his leg wound the concept here is that king arthur's legend is so global everybody's heard of it through various different means but it is really an amalgamation of various different folk tales that were combined into one so who's to say who's the progenitor what's the real one and that's what Sukowski is really showing you is how all of this can happen and how that's a part of the storytelling process and how as a writer as an artist you have a moral obligation a duty to tell the truth any way that you can, whether that's a lie that tells the truth or telling an actual truth. And some might not hear it, some may bury it, but the important thing is you did that. It's such an interesting way to take things. You know, uh, a lot of fiction can talk about things like this, but none really capture what it really means to have that. I mean, Babylon 5 did a did a thing with it that I talked about in the episode Deconstruction of Falling Stars, but that was only one episode. And this is an entire, you know, theme that has been going about since the short stories and came to a head here. You could tell that Sapkowski's really, you know, even though he was not a writer by profession, 
he thought about this stuff and thought about the ways in which culture and storytelling and truth and fiction interact. And it's a it's an interesting uh, conundrum to really tackle in these pages. Other bits of this chapter is we get a bit with a mirror and we get a bit with a yen. What's funny is this is all sort of framed around uh, Nimoy and Katwimmer is looking at the paintings. And the paintings are various events that we saw in previous books. Um, you know, such as uh, the first meeting of Yen and Ciri uh, in uh, Blood of Elves, or events yet to come, like the Battle of Brenna. And with Amir, you know, they're they're trying to source the uh, the the person that this this painting was of, because there's no painting, a true painting of Ciri, and that that's part of the commentary is you know who's to say if the people look like this because we had no evidence of the way they looked we only have these paintings to go by and these could be exaggerated paintings etc and what comes to mind when i think of stuff like that is jesus the picture of jesus in most people's minds are the last supper by you know leonardo da vinci and that makes no sense because of where Jesus of Nazareth was born, who was a real person, regardless if you think he was the synagogue or not. That is not the purpose here. We have factual evidence that a person named Jesus of Nazareth did exist, whether he was, you know, a god or not, up to interpretation. But where he was born, he would not be white. <laughs> he definitely wouldn't look Italian. Um, and so the Last Supper is what most people have in their heads. But that's not at all what Jesus looks like in any kind of way possible and if you go to various different places I, I remember I was really struck by um, in in Japan where they have uh, there's a strong uh, specifically Catholic but uh, you know other uh, other denomination of Christianity due to missionary work etc over the centuries and basically there was a painting of Jesus in one of these uh, Japanese Catholic churches that made Jesus look like a Japanese person of Asian descent. And I thought that was really interesting how, if you if you do some digging, all the churches across the globe basically make Jesus sort of amalgamation of the area in which that painting was made. So, uh, you know, you'll, you'll have... A different ethnicity of Jesus in various different places but yet the most commonly accepted one is the one that is scientifically impossible which is the Italian version the Last Supper and so they're trying to track down who this picture was of and of course it's fake Siri and I think that's really interesting that Spokowski is really tapping into that and, and going you know fake Siri as a character has been a plot device and uh, he's going to do some interesting things with her in this book. Um, and what I like about it is he's also not only using it to talk about political maneuverings and uh, inherent confirmation bias, but also, you know, the the ways in which we falsify uh, historical fact and blend fact and fiction into one once you go back far enough, you know. Jesus doesn't look like the Last Supper. You know, what? no way in hell he actually looks like that. But yet, that's what most people think of him as. 
And so we have Fig Siri. And what's interesting with this is that we get an insight into a mirror that we really haven't seen before. We've seen a mirror be the political dominating emperor. We've seen him be the smartest man in the room. And now we see him in a place where he's having to every day look at this woman that looks exactly like his daughter. Uh, obviously, it, reading this the first time, you don't know that, but because I've mentioned it before, and I'll mention it again, if it's in the games and or the TV show, I will count it as not a spoiler, and obviously that's a well-known fact in both the games and the show. And he's basically not used to someone looking like that, first of all, because he hasn't seen Siri in forever, and she, at one point, when he asks her real name, and she can't say it, and he feels sorry for the fact that she has to constantly regurgitate the script, otherwise she fears death, that she looks him in the eye, and he pities her. I think this is important, because if you look at the character of Amir, he's a heartless bastard uh, on paper, but here, and a few other places, like his his you know don't don't touch Jennifer, no one touches her again, or you know don't pussy foot around with the Witcher, he doesn't suffer fools, you know small little things connect it back to the Dunny character who he was, and well Dunny had a bit of a menace. If you know the twist, you can really read some menace into the lines. There is this hint out he's not completely the monster. He plays the monster, and in many ways he is a monster. But there is something inside of him, a shard of ice, if you will. A sliver of good somewhere in him. Uh, and he takes pity. He actually feels empathy. And I think that's such an interesting concept, and we'll see that coming back, because it parallels Yen, where Yen appears to be this menacing figure on the outside, uh, but is actually caring. And then when she comes to know you, she's caring on the outside, but can be menacing, you know, when you least expect. And so it, with Amir, it's almost the exact same. He appears this dominating figure, but is, actually does care a little. And then the Yen side of this, uh, I, I really like how she's just not taken uh, with Vilgefort stuff, like, he keeps trying to drip-feed her false information, she's like, yeah, fuck that, and one thing that I really like is the little detail about how her fingers are so mangled from the torture that she can barely hold up a cup or hold a fork, but yet she still does it to look dignified, that she has a sense of decorum about her even when she is so miserable. And occasionally when she lets that decorum slip and she shows her true anger, that's when Vilgefortz gets the most pleasure out of this is because he enjoys seeing that. And so she's trying not to satisfy him. And of course her impaling Bonhart with a fork is just amazing. Stay away from bitches. You're too weak for them. Uh, such a such a great little bit, and what I like is that it shows Yin's indomitability. That she can be put through hell, uh, but she and she will have to give some, which she did last book, but she twisted it in a way that she knew that Geralt would be okay. And, and then now she's having to put on airs of being all right, but really she's in turmoil. 
but she's indomitable. She refuses to break. Especially because I went on that tirade a few chapters ago in Tower Swallows about the Netflix version of Yen and how much I disagree with a lot of the takes. Notice in this chapter she breaks. When she breaks, she goes, you'll go fuck yourself, you swine. Notice how the way in which Yen uses language. Uh, it's been present since her introduction. She's very eloquent, but can be very crass when she needs to be. It all depends on her audience. And she rarely swears, but when she does, it's targeted. It's intentionally done to unnerve the person. Get underneath the skin. Whereas Netflix again is saying fuck every episode and we treat that like it's normal. This is a person who has been refined over so long to be, you know, this this symbol of perfection because that's what sorceresses are, what they do. Nothing is more silly than a sorceress in tears. Like, this is a key fundamental fact of her character. She, she had that beaten out of her, basically. And so when she lets that mask that has been so firmly planted on her slip, it has to mean something. Uh, shows the difference in quality of writing between Sapkowski, who is, you know, calculated and measured and ensures every word matters, and Netflix writers, who used to be CW writers, who write for the lowest common denominator. One interesting thing, uh, and I've pointed it out before, and I'll continue to point it out, uh, but we know that Galt is going to be sleeping with Frangela Vigo. Um, you know, we got hints of it in previous books, We got, and we have a straight-up sex scene in here, but we don't really know exactly who it is. But just notice that she is described with raven black hair, green eyes, and the way she talks, you know, she's far more needy than Yen. Uh, but has this sense of superiority that is of Yen in many ways. She's less caring than Yen, uh, but also she has the, the, the neediness comes from a place of almost protectiveness. And so she's sort of this amalgamation of Yen and Siri that she has physical and, um, you know, traits uh not only physical but mental of both yen and siri she's she, she you know she's more needy so therefore needing of protection like a child like siri she's manipulative like yen uh can be menacing like yen has raven black hair like yen has green eyes like siri etc and so that you really get the sense that Geralt is in a place of not being particularly mentally well, in which he has basically sought a surrogate. Because you got to remember, we know the difference, but he doesn't. He thinks Siri is dead, and uh, Yen has betrayed him. That's all he. That's all he knows, and that's what he thinks. Of course, none of it's true. Uh, but that's what he thinks. So he's in this miserable spot, and he's stuck in Tusaw because they're the winter den and as Nimue and Codweamers point out that all the sort of you know tellings of the legend pretty much skip over this chapter even Dandelion who writes two chap entire chapters about his exploits in Tucson barely mentions anything about the witcher matter of fact the excerpt that begins the next chapter is Dandelion's exact words that that love takes many forms do not condemn him and that is where we're at we're, we're 
we're in a place where everybody's kind of in a spot that makes them uncomfortable. You have Amir, who's feeling empathy because he is now developing feelings for this woman that looks exactly like his daughter, so maybe he has a parental aspect to him. Uh, a shard of ice somewhere in there. We have Yen, who's trying to be indomitable, but is sl slowly her mask is slipping, and, and Vilgefortz is trying to ensure that. And then we have Geralt, who's in a depressive state, snowed in into this land of ridiculous and fairy tales. We got introduced to the nice Aaron's last book, you know, Pawn My Word and all that, and we will get more of that, and we'll come to really understand how disconnected Tucson is from the rest of the world. What an interesting way to really begin our final book. You got, you know, everybody's in a place that they're not really comfortable with. And then you have Siri reflecting on it, being upset by it. And then you have Weimer and Nimoy who are scholars academically looking at this. It really brings in the tone of just like if you were expecting a happy ending, you weren't paying attention. Uh, I'll see you next time. Until then, bye.